Hello to all you travelers out there on the road to evidence-based literacy instruction. I'm Kate Wynn, classroom teacher and host of IDA Ontario's new podcast, Reading Road Trip. Welcome to the show. This is episode six of our very first season. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast from the traditional land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe. We are grateful to live here and thank the generations of First Nations people for their care for and teachings about the earth. We also recognize the contributions of Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples in shaping our community and country. Along with this acknowledgement and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, we'd like to amplify the work of an Indigenous artist. And this week we are sharing Be a Good Ancestor by Leona Prince and Gabrielle Prince illustrated by Carla Joseph. Rooted in Indigenous teachings, this stunning picture book encourages readers of all ages to consider the ways in which they live in connection to the world around them and to think deeply about their behaviors. Add this one to your home or classroom library today. And now on with the show. I am so excited to introduce our guest here this week, Renata Archie. Renata is the Academic Intervention Services Coordinator for a New York City public school district. She supports a portfolio of elementary schools and principals with literacy assessment, data analysis, intervention, and strengthening instructional leadership team practices. She has been instrumental in supporting the district's school building leaders and classroom teachers in learning about evidence-based literacy practices and MTSS. With 24 years in education, Renata has worked as a classroom teacher, K-2 instructional coach, and dance educator. Renata is a doctoral student in Mount St. Joseph's Reading Science Program. She is passionate about all things MTSS and especially the use of evidence-based decision-making to improve K-2 literacy outcomes. Outside of work and school, Renata is a mom to an 18-year-old son who will be heading to the University of Southern California in the fall. Renata is originally from Northern California and is an alumna of UC Berkeley. She is a classically trained musician and dancer and enjoys gardening, skiing, cooking, and tennis in her free time. She looks forward to more free time for these activities once her dissertation is complete, which I'm sure is true. Welcome to the show, Renata. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to be um, asked to do this. So nice to meet you. And I know my um, esteemed co-producer, Una Malcolm, also the uh, the president now of IDEA Ontario, is in the same doctoral program as you. And she just raves about you and thought you would be perfect to have on the show. So I'm excited to get started. Here's the first question. Mm-hmm. So I know you've got a broad area of expertise with a lot of this K-2 stuff. But what I really want to dig into first is screening. And for those of us in Ontario, we know that that universal screening has been mandated for our year two kindergarten students, which would be your your K in the States, up to our grade two. And that was one of the major areas of inquiry for our right to read um, in the OHRC. So could you unpack the idea of universal screening for us a little bit? How is it different from ways we have assessed reading in the past? And why is it so important that we screen? So there's a, as you know, there's a wealth about 50 years of research now um, helping us understand how to teach reading. And part of that um, is prevention. So some of the assessments that I know as a young teacher were available to me weren't necessarily giving me rich information about essential literacy skills that were predictive of later outcomes for children. So what 
universal screening does, it's something as it's as it's said, universal. All children are screened three times a year, um, in the beginning of the year, middle and the end. Um, the definition of a screener is that it's brief, meaning it's not taking 30, 40, 90 minutes to administer. And it is collecting information about specific skills that can tell you about that student at that time of year, um, at that grade level, that's going to be beneficial. And it's something that a teacher can move on immediately. So it's meant to flag students who are at risk for later difficulties. Um, so that is the um, most important thing about a screener. The other important thing, I'm not sure if you guys will be using Acadians, but there, there are various types of screeners, but that they are valid, meaning that the screener actually collects the information that it's meant to collect. Um, people may have heard the word reliable. That means that if it's used over and over again by different um, educators, it will give um, consistent outcomes so that you can trust it, that it's collecting what it should be. So it should be valid, re reliable, brief and efficient and collect information about those really important skills. So that is why uh, like your township, your province, um, even New York City um, is moving towards making sure K to two students uh, are screened uh, because at a certain point, those very, very essential skills, if the students have not mastered them, um, then we end up in a, in a situation where we're having reading difficulties that we have to remediate. Thank you. And just to follow up, you did mention Acadian. So I know that's what mm -hmm. I use. That's what my board is going with. I know some in Ontario going with Dibbles as well, which is similar. Mm -hmm. um, is a screener something that a board could just kind of create on their own and use that as their universal screener? No. So um, there's a website at the end. Hopefully you can post the podcast with some links and resources. Um, so the Researchers who did all of the 30 years of research behind Dibbles are um, um, also the same researchers who now are behind Acadians. So a lot of time and resources go have gone into understanding what needs to be measured for a child. So kindergarten, I know that you taught kindergarten. I've, I taught kindergarten for um, many years. There are specific skills we want those little ones to know by a certain time and throughout the year those skills may change. So researchers determining which skills are we asking students to have mastered, um, where would we like them to be with that skill? So you can't necessarily just make up one, you know, educators can't just sit down and say, you know, let's assess this and be kind of fuzzy about it. It does need to be evidence-based um, because we know that that skill in particular is something that will help us know how a, ch how a child may read later in second, uh, grade two or grade three. Great. So we know that the screening itself, I mean, just that data isn't alone going to be the piece that changes student outcomes. It's obviously the instruction that we provide. So um, how can we take our screening data to determine what we're doing in small instructional groups to try to, to get the best, best outcomes for those kids instead of just, you know, okay, I, I did my screening and, you know, maybe I've got my piece of paper or I've got it entered into the computer and then I'm going to close it and go about my business. We don't want that, right? We want to actually use that data. So how can we, uh, how can we use that to help inform our small group instruction and why would we use this instead of say guided reading levels? Yes. So the piece, you have the collection of the, the data 
and then the instruction. But the piece in between is the database decision making, um, the conversations we have as educators to make those instructional decisions. And so that's a big part of what I do each day um, and why having coaches even in your school to assist with this work um, is important. So after the data um, are collected, uh, whether it be teacher teams, whether it be teachers on their own, sometimes schools will have an instructional leadership team, the process of data analysis, looking at the data and determining what's happening with my students. So you're, you're maybe looking at, you may be looking at the data on the individual level, on um, looking at students who falling fall into a zone where they're struggling with specific skills, maybe like a like group. Um, and you may be looking at your whole class. Often there you may look across the whole class and realize that there's something awry that needs to be addressed with instruction. So that process of understanding what you've collected is very much connected to teacher content knowledge also. We have to know what it is that we've collected, what's the implication of it for my instruction. So with that information, you can now uh, target your whole group, whole group instruction. You can also create groups that are more meaningful um, in the sense that it's very, the instruction is geared towards what those specific students need. Um, and you can also see it where there's systematic issues, maybe across your school or grade. Um, maybe my teachers need training in this, thus, and so. You may be able to determine those things based on the data you find. So now, at, after that point, then you're going to um, implement instruction for all the students. Um, there's another, you asked about the groupings. Acadians has some grouping sheets. I think you um, mentioned those that are helpful for that initial organizing of the students. And so for every grade, K, one and two, they help you um, organize the students into four different groups based on specific skills, skill measures at that time of year. Um, so that's like the first step a teacher would take. It's not the last, but it helps you um, get started. And after that, I'm not sure if you, um, if your, your teachers and everything are are familiar with the outcomes-driven model or different um, frameworks for uh, problem solving. So that, and I'll talk about that more a little a little bit later. But I mention it because it it asks you to question: Do I have all the information I need? So if I gathered all this information about my kindergarten class and I've used my group and sheets to now um, organize them into different four different groups that help me understand where they may be struggling, I might need some more information about a specific group of students to help me now plan for instruction. So I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, that's great. So I mean, mm -hmm. for some kids, we might be moving on to that diagnostic assessment piece, right? Where we're trying to dig in a little bit deeper to see to see what is going on there. Um, and so with that data from the screener, why is it important to use that kind of data as opposed to, you know, getting our reading level and grouping kids? You know, I'm going to have my C's together and my D's together. Why do we not want to base it on that? Yes. So... I know throughout a lot of our careers, at least when I was a younger teacher, um, my school and the consultants that assisted me um, approached literacy from a balanced literacy approach. Um, I, we had guided reading, we had reading levels, we had leveled text. 
at this point, what we understand now about level text, I'll start with those. Those little books that we call you know, double A, A, B, C, they often are not they are not um, set up to allow students to practice the decoding skills that they've been learning in their, um, you know, in their phonics lessons. Um, they are also, they also may include words and patterns the students have not been exposed to or taught. Um, so they're, they're a little bit problematic, the way the books are written and the kind of text. It's not that children can't read them later on, but when we have emerging readers that we'd like them to have repeated successful opportunities to read um, and get fluent using their phonemic awareness and phonics skills as they do it, they're not the best text. So the concept of leveled leveling students into readers, like these students are B readers or these students are C readers, it's a little arbitrary. Um, the, and it's something that we all had to kind of unlearn. Even parents still ask me, oh, what level is my child? And I try to massage them into understanding, here are the skills that I need um, your little one to master. Here's how you can help at home. So it's a different way of looking at it. Um, we want teachers and parents to understand these are the components. These are the skills that help help a child become a fluent decode, decoder of a, a code-based alphabetic system in a system. And um, once we get there, they'll be able to read anything eventually. So that um, it's more of a, the lens through which you, you know, you see it, the level, the leveling of students is not telling me what skill they need. Um, and the, what we call a cued, you know, the cue, the queuing system. Yeah of looking at the kind of mistakes they're making doesn't fit into this evidence-based um, practice that I'm talking about. So we really want educators to think more about, do they have the phonemic awareness skills? Um, are they able to uh, segment, blend? Are they able to decode? Um, all of that, as opposed to teaching them to maybe guess at words, and that's probably another podcast. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, okay. So we've screened, we've got our data, we've planned out, we know what's happening whole group. We've got our kids grouped into, you know, their different groups. So what does that small group instruction look like? And then also the million dollar question, everyone wants to know, what are the other kids doing during small group instruction? So the small group based on, I'll use kindergarten because that is the grade I'm, uh, you know, I have the most affinity towards so we know that kindergarten students need a lot more support in the beginning, you know, from that fall to winter um, time period because they're often new to the classroom setting. So what I will start with with the lower grades is that everything you do, um, routines, um, the concept of getting into groups has to be modeled has to be explicitly explained to them so that they understand. So whatever activity you're going to plan for your groups has to be explained to all of the children. Um, and this is you doing yourself a favor or you will end up um, stressed out with not understanding what's happening. Uh, so with that being said, it does take time and it, 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 takes your, your, it takes you being very well organized and well planned. So when you've placed students into groups, you're going to plan 
activities that are aligned to assisting them with those skills they're struggling with, giving them repeated opportunities for practice. So that doesn't mean you're sitting in a group for a long time. Um, it, it, It could be a matter of 10 to 12 minutes and you may rotate. You may see a group twice a week. You may see a group three times a week, but they're getting that very specific support in something that they need and an opportunity to repeated, repeatedly practice and succeed. Um, and I keep saying that because as a young teacher, you know, we were all told different things. Um, it's actually not okay to let students, they're going to make mistakes, but we want immediate corrective feedback so that now their, their mouth, their ears, everything they're producing is, is accurate. And the more accurate, then it's mapping onto their minds in the right way. It's more difficult for us to unlearn, even adults, for us to unlearn something that we've practiced. So with that being said, planning for the students, things that are aligned, um, that are appropriate. Uh, We spoke earlier about some activities that we may think are very simple, but students do need um, support with them. So yes, for kindergarten, it is more difficult. It can work, but definitely introducing them to any any activity that's aligned to what they need, that they are able to do on their own. And we're not gonna be able to leave them there for a long time. Maybe you have a rotation. I'm not a super big fan of technology, but there are some, there, there are some good, nice things that have been created. So um, a teacher would need to, very thoughtfully plan several activities that the children could rotate through. But all of those activities, all that the students would would need to be familiar with, what are the expectations? What are the behavior expectations when I'm there? Um, I've seen teachers, awesome teachers in my district, they have systems in place with bells, they'll have little <laughs> signs where the children know um, if I'm if I have my little sign up, I'm working with my group. So it does take time, but it's, it's, it's wonderful when that gets um, into place. So I hope that answered, answered the question that you can sit, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with a group and rotate to another one. But as long as all other students know what the expectations are, um, they can't be um, doing activities that need heavy support from an adult. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And I know there are some teachers who have, you know, really organized systems in place for that kind of group rotation. And and I think some things that that maybe stem sort of from balanced literacy, the daily five approach or the cafe approach, that sort of thing. But I think what I'm hearing from you is what they need to be doing in their groups is something like evidence-based. It needs to be what they should be working on and also should be something that they can definitely do independently without teacher assistance. Does that sound right? Yes. Yes. And maybe it has an accountability, you know, even uh, whether they be five years old or six, you know, or up to grade two, um, they interact with, sorry, they interact with the activity and maybe there's something that they need to be able to show um, at the end when we all come back together, all the groups need to share something or, so it's meaning, meaningful all the way through. Um, Yeah. Okay. And I had another question that you actually answered um, partway through your answer. So it doesn't seem like every child needs to be seen every day for the same amount of time. Because I think that's kind of from some of those rotational things too. It's like, well, I'm going to do 10 minutes a day with every group and ring the bell and rotate, but that's not necessarily addressing the needs of the individual kids. 
right? Not necessarily. You're you're going to get screener data. You have children who are meeting benchmark and above. They need you and they need to be in a small group as well. But you also have students who are even hovering at benchmark or below benchmark and may need additional support or um they, there's a more rudimentary skill they need extra practice with. So you're going to be setting up and delivering what all your children need based on that. And that means intensity, right? Uh, frequency, um, that even that kind of thinking also goes into progress monitoring. So everything, nothing's cookie cutter. Um, so, okay. yeah. I wanted to ask, so we you mentioned MTSS earlier, and mm-hmm. I know in Ontario, it's becoming more common language, the idea of talking about tier one and tier two and tier three. And I feel like tier one, we kind of have a grasp of, you know, sort of your whole group and your, your universal thing happening in your class with everybody. The tier three, like when I'm thinking of tier three, I'm thinking, for example, of our special education resource teachers who take a small group of students from the school for one hour every day for Empower, which is an intensive remedial reading program. Like, so to me, I feel like that that's tier three I'm kind of wondering about sort of that tier two line because I'm thinking about things even that I do in my class so some tier some small group activities to me would be part of tier one like they're just part of that universal instruction but you're just doing things with a small group so I'm thinking about I take usually a writing group and it's not even necessarily um, a homogeneous writing group but just a few kids because I want to be able I don't want to have to spread myself too thin so I just take a few kids at a time and last year I was trying to use the um, rising star scaffolding guide from um, Dr. Sonia Cabell and some of her colleagues where you kind of prompt each kid based on where they are with their writing and so with some kids, they might be, they might have a beautiful sentence written and I'm saying, okay, can you extend that? Tell me where it happened or when it happened. And then some kids are just trying to write the word dog. And so you're saying, you know, okay, well, what, what's the first sound you hear in dog and whatever. Um, but that's kind of part of what I consider tier one because everybody's getting all this writing instruction. But then I think about a little guy where I took him from the start of the year, one-to-one, several minutes every day. And we were methodically going through those letters and sounds because he was in the first year of kindergarten last year and it wasn't clicking. And so I thought, okay, we got to up the intensity. We got to, you know, increase things. And it almost, like to me, that almost felt like doing tier two in the classroom. Does that make sense that, that there are some things that a classroom teacher could do that are kind of getting into the tier two realm? There, um, yes, um, that makes sense. I do want to talk really quickly across the tiers, one, two, and three, and then talk about tier two. So, Um, the listeners understand. Um, Mm -hmm. Tier one, if we have constructed it well and all that we've been talking about so far, is meant to be able to get almost 80% of your students to benchmark where we want them to get. But you're going to always have students, like you were saying, who may not be responding or it's not enough to get them where we want to. So they need tier two support. What the tier two support is in addition to what they're already getting. So tier one includes whole group and small group, like you said. Now tier two is gonna be something additional that I needed some just additional practice. And that's gonna be small group, um, maybe a little smaller than your tier one. So yes, teachers can deliver that. I get concerned sometimes about teachers being overwhelmed. So where I mentioned MTSS before, where all all adults and educators in the building are participating in this conversation um, and have access to the student data. 
So a, the teacher, classroom teacher can definitely deliver it if it works into the schedule, if it, um, you know, it, we have to be creative. If we have assistant teachers, if we have out of classroom folks, that planning can happen together or even the tier two delivery could be shared. So there's many ways to do it. Um, and tier three, like you said, once, um, and we'll talk about progress monitoring um, in a bit, but once you've, like your child, your student you just mentioned, over the weeks, looking at the data and seeing that that child still is not responding to that additional, more intensive support you've put in place, then we end up in um, in need of tier three, which is going to be a, a smaller group. Sometimes it's one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes it's a very small group and it's more intense daily, like you said. Um, and that response to tier three uh, supports, sometimes um, outside classroom teachers and another team may be paying attention to that to see if there is some need for special education support. So that's how the tiers work. Um, and I know some of the listeners may imagine they've seen that that pyramid of of um, it's like a pyramid with the green on the bottom and the yellow and the red, which basically lays out the um, eighty percent. And just to not confuse them, we don't. We're not saying that eighty percent of the students fit here and twenty percent fit here and five percent here. It's just a kind of suggested model of reflecting on our the health of our system, the health of our instructional and assessment system. Um, if that makes sense. So yes, definitely classroom teachers can deliver tier two. I, as a, I always go back to kindergarten classroom. Um, it's a lively classroom. We, you know, so when I think about a student not responding to my universal instruction for all, I, do, I would like it to be a calmer, quieter environment. So like I, each school would have to be creative in how to do that. So yes, it's possible. Yeah. Um, I would, I would rather if my students were maybe in another, you know, in another place, maybe they're at library, maybe they're somewhere else. And then I can pull that group for additional and it's a little quieter, but that's. Yes. And we're lucky ideas. in Ontario, the way the kindergarten program works, it's a partnership between two adults. So there's that Ontario certified teacher, and there's also the early childhood educator. And so there are two adults as a team in every kindergarten class. So we get really creative with that in terms of, you know, when I've got the kids and my partner does something or my partner has the kids and then I can do something. So yeah, that definitely happens at like that. Working with that one little guy was definitely in an empty space. Um, yes, I, I love that. that. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, practically speaking, we would love that, you know, as soon as we screened and we saw some need or a child wasn't responding with tier one, we'd love to kind of get, you know, special education help or whatever. But we just know in terms of bodies, in terms of funding, we know that's not going to be possible, right? So it is great if teachers are able to kind of start that process. But uh, but you're right, in a, in a busy kindergarten class, it, it's definitely hard to, uh, hard to pull a child and get them to focus on something like that. So you mentioned progress monitoring, which is great because I do want to talk about that next. So we're, we're doing our, our small group stuff. We might be, you know, targeting certain things, certain kids. How do we know it's working? What do we do? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I'm trying to help my schools here in um, New York City um, do is creation of something called decision rules. So before, you know, in this summertime when school's not in session, um, instructional leaders sitting down and teachers to organize when we get this data, not just the grouping sheets, using the grouping sheets, but what else helps us determine which children need 
this group or that group or this kind of support. So having those conversations are key. Having those decision rules and understanding um, are first and foremost. And then um, that includes making a plan for progress monitoring. So uh, if you have students who are struggling with certain skills, the plan for how often will I collect some additional data across the months um, to make sure you are responding? So I'll take one of the kindergarten measures. They do first sound fluency in, in the fall. A lot of children come in and they don't really know how to do that. So, But we know we're teaching that right now. So I may be progress monitoring just to make sure based on my instruction that the children are picking up. And you may have students falling into that scenario that need tier two support. Maybe they need additional. So I may progress monitor them more often. Maybe it's every week, once a week, just a quick little um, snap, or maybe it's every other week. That Those are the kinds of decisions that the school needs to make um, based on how a child is doing, how a child is responding, how severe maybe their, um, their status is in terms of um, meeting benchmark. Um, and we're, we're basically not going to wait. You know, we do the three times a year, beginning of the year and middle of the year. I'm not going to screen you in the beginning and then have instruction the whole time and then collect again in the middle. I need to know how you're doing because something might not be working out for you and I need to be aware. So that's the purpose of progress monitoring. And it helps us adjust, um, adjust our instruction based on what children need. Sometimes a child is now in a group and they have got it. So they need, that's why we call it flexible grouping. So um, you might not need this anymore and you can move to a different group. So that's how it helps us. And it's going to be different for more, in, more intense or more frequent or less intense or less frequent, depending on the student. And I think it's good for listeners to know too. I mean, we talked about a couple of examples of universal screeners. We mentioned Acadians, we mentioned Dibbles. They have progress monitoring forms. It's so you're not trying to make this up on your own to you know check in and see where the kid is. They actually have forms that you can use. So I mean, I think with Acadians, there may be like 20 forms that take you through the year to progress monitor 20 times if need be, right? So you can find those resources there. And also, I mean, if a child was at or above benchmark at the beginning of the year, we wouldn't necessarily need to progress monitor them, we're progress monitoring the kids who maybe were flagged because they were below or well below benchmark. Right. Yeah. And I mean, something I've seen, so you may have a child who's, uh, let me think of another measure for K1 phoneme segmentation fluency, um, or even the nonsense word fluency, certain skills, the nonsense word, we, we want the children to get better and better and more fluent and more masterful at it. Um, if instruction is not, if my instruction is not bolstering that skill, you might have a child who shows I'm at benchmark, but we also want to draw attention. I always tell teachers, look at where there's a little carrot. Look at where the child is actually falling in relation to benchmark. They could be very close to it. Um, don't let the green fool you. It makes you think like, oh, I've arrived. Maybe, but we always say reading is a moving target. And as a child, you know, it gets six months older, we want those skills to be even better. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you may have a child who meets benchmark and then in the middle of the year, you see they fell below. Um, and it may be not that they are not doing as well. It's that they had not, maybe they had not improved. So those sorts of things we want to make sure um, 
uh, teachers pay attention to um, also. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know I was working with one teacher and we were, um, we were doing um, the or reading fluency assessment. And then it showed that over time, this child's word to correct per minute had gone up. However, they went from green to yellow. And so the teacher was asking, I don't understand, like, they got better. So how come now they're yellow? But the target moves throughout the year, right, for where they're expected right. to be at beginning and middle and end. So yes, they have to keep that, that trajectory up in order to stay at or above benchmark. That's a great point. The next thing I want to ask you about is, so in Ontario, as I mentioned, we're working with recommendations from the Right to Read Inquiry from the Ontario Human Rights Commission. They included this early screening as one of their key recommendations, so for year two kindergarten through grade two, and emphasized that screening makes a positive contribution to equitable practices. It's a way to address implicit bias or possible lowered expectations for students from those equity-seeking groups. But despite all of this information, there's still some concerns from some that that screening is not feasible or perhaps desirable with culturally or linguistically diverse children. So what can you tell us about what the research says about that? But also, I know you work in a context with uh, incredible cultural and linguistic diversity. So how have you seen screening kind of intersecting with the population of students you work with? Yes, I actually, um, I'm just now hearing about this um, concern. Um, and I'll hear it a little bit from some of our special education teachers. So with English English language learners, or I'm sure, you know, where where you you guys are in Canada, there's many different language languages and varieties and home languages. If the goal is to become a fluent reader and writer of the English language, there's certain things that a student needs to master. So that is that is a hands down, just a non-negotiable. So I think some of it is more understanding um, what the goal is or what the purpose is, like what we spoke about initially in the podcast, like what's the purpose of this screener? Um, it's a it's not an SAT score. It's or it's not a um, something that is punitive. It's a tool for a teacher to understand how I can where it's uh, it's been um, equated to like a GPS or a thermometer where this student is with this skill in relation to where they need to be to become that fluent reader. And that's for any child if we'd like them to become a reader. And we know literacy is literacy and becoming literate is a social justice issue. We, we, we'd like all humans to be able to, um, to function and be, be literate and be uh, wonderful you know, participants in society, but they need to have that skill. So when it comes to English language learners, there's other uh, considerations. And the, I'd point readers to the work of Dr. Antonio Fierro. Dr. Um, here we have a lot of Spanish speakers, but still the work that they've done around it is, is, is poignant. It is rich. Um, Dr. Elsa Cardenas-Hagen, um, structured literacy, uh, the approach that is necessary for all students is necessary for learners who are coming from a different home language or even language varieties. Uh, so I think it's more, I think it's more of an issue of understanding what the goal is. If we can all agree that the goal is for children and to become fluent readers uh, and here's a, here are the things that they need to have, then a screener and certain types of assessments are tools. Nothing 
nothing more than that that can help a teacher. Yes, there are um, exceptions for certain students with certain disabilities that the screener may not be um, the best, but what we want classroom teachers to understand about the students that are coming to you with a different home language. That to me is the big issue. So your, your charge as a classroom teacher is to get to know all your students and especially students coming with a different home language or language variety. Um, delivering very robust instruction to all students, but especially for students, um, and making sure you are enriching their receptive and expressive language, um, learning about their language. There's something called cognates. Um, when they're learning um, different sounds, they're learning phonemic awareness, they need all of that. Every child needs it. So that is the responsibility of the adult to become much more aware so that the instruction you're delivering and even the conversations you have or any additional scaffolds or conversation or vocabulary or um, visuals or things you use now help to uh, support that child to land right there with their peers. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answered the question. Yes. And I love how you mentioned a couple of times, like, you know, understanding kind of about screeners, because I think for some people too, if they aren't fully informed about universal screening, they think, oh, this child is going to be flagged and diagnosed with dyslexia at the beginning of kindergarten. And it's because of, you know, a difference with home language or something. That's not how this works. I mean, you use the thermometer analogy, right? Like, no, no, we just want to take their temperature. If they're at risk, we'll figure out what's going on from there. Like we're not slapping labels on anybody because of a screener. What we're really trying to do is, is to help them. Right. And uh, yeah. And so that was an excellent point that you made there. Speaking of your your excellent points, wondering now if you could just share, you know, any lessons you've learned, you as a professional are a few steps ahead of where we are in Ontario, but I think also other provinces, other states, you know, many places where they're not really, um, you know, full steam ahead with this universal screening process yet. So lessons you've learned, wisdom that you want to share with us as we keep moving along. Yes. Um, so first is to know this is a, a long, this is a multi-year journey. So we did get started here in this city, um, but it's a multi-year journey. Uh, when I spoke about MTSS, making sure all educators first are fully trained in whatever screener you're going to be using and have a good understanding across your school building of the components of MTSS, what the full goal is. So this screener is one thing, but it fits within the context of a, a school-wide assessment system, a way of thinking and a way of functioning. So those, those are some of the things that I know um, we're trying to, I'm trying to help our schools get into motion. Um, everyone understanding what this is all about and working collaboratively. Um, Making sure, uh, I know I'm, I'm certified as an Acadian's mentor, so is my, my classmate, Una. Making sure someone in the building, or two or three, become a certified um, either Acadian's mentor or whatever system you're using. And that helps build the capacity and sustainability. You want to have refresher trainings um, throughout the year, someone who can do that, fidelity checks to make sure uh, the assessment's being administered properly. Um, to make sure we're all doing it the same way. Uh, here and there, unless you talk to people, you'll realize there's some misunderstandings. And not because, you know, it sometimes it falls through the crack when you're trying to train many, many educators at once, you know, across an entire city. 
So those are really, those are some of the biggest key things to, to, to have in place, uh, to begin with. Um, the other part after that's collected is setting up those teacher teams and instructional, um, leadership teams that are going to have a, an approach to analyzing the data or else you, like you said earlier, it's just collected and we're sitting here going, what what do I do with this? So I'd say those are the first, first big steps. And it does, it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. Oh, and coaches, (laughs) coaches, if possible, I know it. For sure. Um, I was actually trained as a mentor um, a few months ago and then had the opportunity to train some educators at our board um, with Acadians, which is is great. And you're right, there is a lot to it and making sure that training piece is there and the support piece is there because the data is only good to us if it's, as you mentioned before, reliable and it's valid. And so if people are using all different systems and, okay, I'm going to give them a little extra time or I'm going to, you know, kind of do this differently or I'm not going to mark those as incorrect because of this reason, like you can't do that, right? You have to, uh, you have to stick to the script and stick to, uh, stick to the procedures to get data that we can compare to the benchmarks to then make good decisions. So yeah, thanks for, uh, for highlighting that, that training and support piece. The last thing I want to ask before I let you go is what are you working on these days? I mean, your dissertation um, and what's, what's happening with you and is there anything that you want to share with listeners before we say goodbye? Yeah. So, um, as you know, I mean, I'm very concerned about um, stopping this cycle of ineffective practices and making sure um, all educators around me understand um, assessment and the use of data. And so even before my current position, my current position, I, I support principals and their entire schools um, with this, all things MTSS and data. And um, even before I got into this position, I was really concerned about the school leader um, and school leaders understanding um, because they're charged with really like being captain of the ship and creating that environment that can have these structures that we're describing. So my dissertation, um, which I'm, you know, Una also, we're all submerged in this until um, next spring and I chose to focus on a group of principals that are underrepresented in um, the field and underrepresented in the empirical research. So I'll be looking at black principals in the United States um, to understand um, what you call self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is their confidence or your confidence in uh, doing a particular task you know, in order to complete a goal, if my self-efficacy is high for something, I'm more apt to um, persist through challenges. And um, so self-efficacy has been researched for teachers. And it's really important um, when it comes to the success of students. So I'll be looking at the self-efficacy of Black principals, also their familiarity and um, experience with MTSS. So um, within that, I won't talk too much jargon, but I'll be looking for some correlations. So someone like me who spent 13 years as a kindergarten teacher um, asking if a leader spent more time as a K to two teacher, um, did they have higher self-efficacy for things like database um, decision-making? So that's what I'm into right now. And it's, um, it's gonna be interesting, all of it in efforts to understand what school leaders need and um, what else we can do for them in the future to make this literacy effort um, more successful. 
Well, that sounds fascinating and very worthwhile. So good luck with all of that. And soon we will be calling you Dr. Renata Archie. Um, But for now, (laughs) Renata Archie, thank you so much for being here with us for this episode and sharing all of your expertise. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Show notes for this episode with all the links and information you need can be found at podcast.idaontario.com. And you have been listening to episode six with Renata Archie. And I have to say, after Renata and I finished our official call, we had a little chat. And one thing I said was, I hope we said and made enough of a point of the fact that this screening is an amazing thing for teachers, because I know we got into, you know, a lot of the nuts and bolts and how to work with it and all of that stuff. But I can tell you as someone who has been using it um, in my classroom for a full year plus a little bit of the year before. Um, It's incredible. It is a game changer. It makes me feel so much more empowered in terms of, I know what skills kids need to learn how to read. I can assess and see where they are. I can target those skills. I can watch that data climbing. I can send them to the next grade feeling confident that they're where they should be. It's unlike any other type of assessment that we have. And you, I really just want to encourage teachers, if you're listening in a place like Ontario where you may be mandated to use it, please embrace it. Ask all the questions you need to get the support. Um, but you will love it once you, once you get doing it. And then if you live somewhere where you don't have to do a screener like this, I'd really encourage you to look into it as well and perhaps give it a try because, you know, um, I did one PD session and I said, we should make a game of every time I say game changer because universal screening for me using a cadence, but there are, there are others, um, it has truly been a game changer to the benefit of my students, but also also to the benefit of me as a professional. So um, definitely this universal screening is a good thing. And the beauty of hosting a podcast is that when I forget to bring something up in the interview, I have this uh, last little piece of time to, to share it with you. The other thing I want to mention is if you want to learn more about universal screening, IDA Ontario did in their Literacy Leaders series last spring, a three-part series on universal screening. So my um, amazing co-producer Una Malcolm who is also president of ID Ontario she facilitated and there was you know kind of a PD component to each of those sessions sharing information about universal screening and really digging into that and then two um, of my fellow teachers Nellie Caruso and Lee Fettis and I the three of us were kind of the, the classroom teacher panel and for each session we talked about you know how we were getting ready to do screening and then what we had done with screening and then following up with progress monitoring and where things were going in the final um, final of the three episodes so we are linking to that in the show notes as well highly highly recommend that if you want more information on universal screening that you do check that out and now it is time for that typical end of the podcast call to action if you enjoyed this episode of reading road trip we'd love it if you could rate and or review it in your podcast app so there's usually a place where you can give you know up to five stars um, and you can leave a little review if you want it's really helpful for a new podcast like ours and of course we welcome any social media love that you feel inspired to spread as well feel free to tag IDA Ontario and me my handle is this mom loves on Twitter and Facebook and Kate this mom loves on Instagram please make sure you're following the reading road trip podcast in your app and watch for new episodes continuing every Monday through the summer we could not bring reading road trip to you without behind the scenes support from Caitlin Hanna Brittany Haynes and Melinda Jones at IDA Ontario so appreciate what they do for us 
I'm Kate Wynn, and along with my co-producer Una Malcolm, we hope this episode of Reading Road Trip has made your path to evidence-based literacy instruction just a little bit clearer and a lot more fun. Join us next time when we bring another fabulous guest along for the ride on Reading Road Trip.